My name is David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. Kevin Powell describes himself as an artist, a man, a son, a husband, a human being, a very imperfect, fragile person. But he's also a leader, activist, community organizer, public servant. In other words, Kevin Powell has got a lot on his plate. His latest book, a collection of essays, When We Free the World, is about race, family, justice, sexism, Oprah Winfrey, Tupac, and Russell Simmons. Kevin first came to national prominence on MTV's The Real World in 1992, He's been in and out of the spotlight ever since, running for office and losing, (laughs) and writing 14 books along the way. His long-awaited biography of Tupac Shakur is highly anticipated by me. (laughs) Kevin, welcome to Light Culture. Thank you so much for having me, Brother David. Thank you. You began When We Free the World before the Black Lives Matter uprising, that were ticked off by the murder of George Floyd. What made you want to lay out the harsh reality of your personal life as a kind of case study of what it feels like to be black in America? Well, I mean, I think as people know, the the term Black Lives Matter has actually been around since 2013, 2014. It was originally coined by Dr. Uh, Marcus Anthony Hunter, who was a scholar at UCLA out in California. And I was involved in the Trayvon Martin situation. I was there in Florida when that went down. I was in Ferguson when Michael Brown was killed. And so, you know, these things have been on my mind for some time. And then obviously with the, uh, the, the rise of Donald Trump to the presidency and this whole resurgence of, of white supremacy, anti-immigrant sentiment, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, all of it, you know, all this hatred and violence and division we see in the country, I just felt that it was necessary to write a piece, a book um, that not only dealt with my own personal struggles around racism, but what was happening in the country around all isms, because as you know, all of it is actually interconnected, even though a lot of us think it's all separated. It is, it is not, you know. Were you surprised by the uprising? No, no, because it was a long time coming. I, I think that you cannot continue to, to oppress or suppress any people, uh, no matter who they are, in this case, American people of all backgrounds, as the Trump administration has been doing these past, these first three years of this administration and not have an explosion. So I think it's a combination of Trump, it's a combination of what the pandemic has done to all of us. I mean, I've lost a family member, I've lost friends, we, many of us have, have, have suffered through this. And then to see a officer kneel on the neck of someone for eight minutes and 46 seconds, you know, which is absolutely horrific. I think that just struck something very similar to what we saw when uh, people responded in all, of all backgrounds in the 60s, when you saw the fire hoses and the water hoses and the dogs sicking on, being sicked on people when you saw, you know, black and white folks get killed together like they've been training. It's the same kind of sentiment with this video now. So I think that that is all what led to all the stuff happening around the country. What strikes me particularly is that people still seem to think that the system can prevail, that it's possible to change the system that has brought us to this point today. Well, I think that um, for me as an activist, and I've been an activist for 36 long years, and it started 
in the 1980s when Reagan was the president. It was the same atmosphere as now. You know, back then it was AIDS. Now it's a pandemic. You know, it's the same level of, 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 of hate and violence and division and war mentality. And so I think, you know, what has kept me going all these years is have, you have to have hope. I said this to an interviewer earlier today. I wake up every day thinking that it's possible. I mean, the system is so entrenched, as you know, Brother David, around oppressing the majority of us. And, and many of us don't even realize. And I think, again, a lot of white sisters and brothers who've awakened in this time are like, wait a minute, you know, we're not even cared about us either. Trump cares about half the country. That's the voting bloc, the Fox bloc that supports him. He could care less about the rest of us. And I honestly don't think he cares about them either because most of the poor whites don't share his economic interests. They're just doing it because of the appeal to white nationalism. So I think that all of that uh, is playing a role in challenging this system. I mean, is maybe symbolic to some people, but even the taking down of statues, you know, finally people saying this enough of the Confederate stuff, enough of the racist stuff. This is all horrific and this should not be who we are in this country. One thing I think that stands out right now as well, and as you alluded to, the 60s was a similar moment because a lot of the overwhelming support of the white community, which wasn't really the case, you know, at least based on these polls we read, where with regard to Black Lives Matter, that seems to have been a real surge now of support across the board for, for that movement. I completely agree with you. I think that it's something about that George Floyd video with the officer, Derek Shaven, just kneeling emotionlessly on this man's neck for eight minutes plus, nearly nine minutes, and just looking into the cameras as he's being videotaped. And this man is saying, I can't breathe. And then his last breaths are for his mother. I don't know how anyone, no matter what your identity or identities, can't feel some sense of, of humanity come out of you when you see something like that. And so it's been dramatic. I mean, you now have white sisters and brothers, white people, no matter how they identify themselves, carrying, you know, Black Lives Matter signs, wearing the shirts, wearing the hats, you know, saying down with white supremacy. I mean, I never thought in my 36 years of being an activist that I would see anything like this. You know, I've, I've heard it from old school white radicals that are, were of the 60s, you know, but in the modern generation X and millennials, I never thought I'd see this. It's profound, but it's absolutely necessary because just like uh, in the Me Too movement, Women have said that sexism won't end as long as men don't help to make it in. The same thing happens with racism. White sisters and brothers have got to be part of the solution. You know, we, we didn't, black people and people of color did not create racism in this country. We did not. You know, we've been the victims of it. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Of course, that's I don't think that's ever been the case, though. You know, people have tried to make that the case. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I believe in love, Brother David. I believe in love of all people. I really mean that. I believe in nonviolence. I believe in peace. You know, but I'd be lying to you to say that my journey from uh, uh, being unwoke, as we now say in these times, used to say conscious back in the day, to being woke, it included a period where, you know, yeah, I felt a sort of sort amount of animosity as I was learning about all the history I was not given in school, in the textbooks, in the mass media culture, you know, about my own people. And so you're going to be angry, but the key thing is that it's got to become something that evolves into a proactive anger and love, not destructive anger, where you're just basically mimicking oppression. You just, you end up being just like Donald Trump is what I say to people. And so I hear a lot of the anger. I get it. I've been that person, but it's got to be something that love is transformative. V, uh, who used to be Eve Insler, she's a dear friend of mine, the creator of the Vagina Monologues. We talk about it all the time. Love is the solution. And if it really was that available, then it would have, you know, we'd have been love using it a long answer, time ago. the answer, man, you know, but uh, yeah, know, John Lennon and, and others have, have made that statement, but you know, sometimes right. it's hard to find within everything else that's going on around us. There's so many distractions, and you know, 
I mean, when we met, you know, back in the 90s, we didn't have social media, we didn't have viral videos, we didn't have any of this stuff. And it was already a fast paced society. And so there's so many distractions. But I think one thing the pandemic has done for me is like, let's pick up the phone and talk with people. Let's listen to people. You know, let's actually slow down our lives. Let's think about what really matters to us. It's not material things. It's actually people that matter. You know, human beings matter. And I think, again, George Floyd getting killed in the middle of the pandemic struck a chord with people across this country because they're like, how could this even happen when we're going through a global pandemic and our country is the epicenter of it? Yeah, and, and you know, if anything, that his death can actually lead to a better world would be a huge tribute, right, to him. I agree. I totally agree. And, do you, you know, with Trump, even with Trump in office, you know, and taking the long view, assuming that he'll he'll be removed, you know, we could possibly argue that this helped get him out whereas if if we hadn't had the death and we hadn't had the you know the the movement that followed you know right. chances are he'd still be like rolling along and if we didn't have covid and you know all these things that are terrible in our lives and very upsetting to and disruptive but maybe actually lead to something good in the end well i agree with you i mean i think that if you look at american history or world history the broader context Nothing changes without the people being involved. Politicians, most politicians are not like Bobby Kennedy. They're not like a Bella Abzug or a Shirley Chisholm. Some of the, the elected officials who actually were also kind of activist politicians. You know, so most of them are pretty mainstream straight laces, you know, but it's people who make the politicians do their work. It was people who pushed Johnson to the Civil Rights Bill in 64, the Voting Rights Act in 65. And I believe it's people that are forcing these national conversations around race in a way we have not had since the 1960s. You remember that Bill Clinton attempted to do it in the 1990s, but that got squashed very quickly and it disappeared after the whole scandal happened with him and Monica Lewinsky. So this country actually needs to have this conversation. Yeah, and, and going taking it to the streets is really the only way to get the attention of the politicians and the people in office and to make them you know, have a reckoning with the way things have been, because for the most part, you know, it's just sort of, let's keep it going. Everything's fine. You know, That's we right. could just sort of patch up this here and there, but once people are in the street and you could see that anywhere in the world where people have gone to the street to make noise and make a claim, then usually there's some results come from that. That's right. So That's absolutely right. I mean, and one of the, I mean, what we need, I, I'll tell you, I think is three major areas. One is the, the police departments around the country absolutely must be upended. The fact that most of them are not even equipped to, they're not even culturally competent to relate to people beyond their own immediate backgrounds. The fact that it's just this kind of shield of blue or whatever the color is of the uniform. And the fact that violence is the first solution for everything, I would add to it. And people should check out a book called The End of Policing. It's a very important book to read, The End of Policing where he talks about the fact that police officers, especially since the civil rights era, have been asked not just to be police officers, but mental health workers, social workers, conflict, res conflict resolution specialists, things they actually have not even been trained to do. And that's part of the problem. It's like this, the police have become like this all-purpose thing. And a lot of them actually are afraid of the communities that they police. You can see it during the protest. And I mean, you see during the protest, they're not, they're beating up, these cops are beating up white brothers and sisters. There's, there's no discrimination. One of the most grueling Images for me is the elder white brother in Buffalo who was 75 years old and got pushed back and had his head cracked open. And so we've got to reform this big time. And the streets is the way to do it. 
And throughout the years, uh, you know, recent years, 10, 20 years even, uh, you know, as the economy has gone on, the police budgets have increased on the regular basis and the social services haven't really kept up with that. And as the police have assumed those roles in an aggressive way that they have, it's really created these huge budgets that I can't believe that the New York you know, budget is $7 billion for the police, you know, so now at least they're considering cutting a billion dollars, but wow. And on top of that, you know, the drug war, which also impacts unfavorably into the minority communities, uh, which also enabled the police to, you know, gather resources, make money by taking people's property and, you know, using those laws to their advantage as well building up the arms, all the military style equipment that they have. It was all through the drug, the drug wars. Well, yeah, I mean, the police have become, have been transformed into a, a military. They're a paramilitary force in cities around the country. And you, you hit it on the head, David. And this really goes back to the Reagan years. Immediately after the civil rights movement, there was this backlash to the minimal gains that, that were given in this country, voting rights, you know, uh, some programs, et cetera. And instead of continuing those programs, which actually benefited people like me, I'm a first-generation college student. My mother has an eighth-grade education. My grandmother could not read or write. I inherited generations of poverty. Why was I able to go to college? Rutgers University in my home state of New Jersey, something called the Educational Opportunity Fund, which was created at the height of the Civil Rights Movement, a social program. And by the time you get to the 1980s, when I'm actually in college, the emphasis is being put on law and order, the same thing that Nixon talked about when he's running for president in 1968, the same thing that Donald Trump just talked about the other day at his rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which means that we don't really care about these people. We don't really care about the American people, period. All we want to do is control and contain people. And they use the police force. And the police even need to understand they're pawns in this. They're being used in this. They're being thrown out there in the middle of all of this stuff. Unwittingly, many of the police officers, whether they're white, black, Latinx, Asian, they're working class. And now they're pitted against working class people or people who are saying, wait a minute, what about the rights of all human beings, all Americans, including working class people? And so it's a, it's a huge police state that feeds into the prison industrial complex. It's all connected. It's all connected. You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And at the same time, you write this letter in, in your book, Letter to My Unborn Child, which is yes, you know very passionate. It's a very intense book, by the way, all around. You know, you know your Thank passion you. comes through and it's very moving. And, you know, this letter to my unborn child where you, you know, try to prepare a child that uh, has not been conceived, but in any case, writing a letter for what it would be like for a young black person to come into the world today. So given the world we're in, do you, you still feel like you want to have a child? I do. I, will, I really want to be a father. And I, I, I don't, I need to say this, I come out of the tradition of Frederick Douglass, of people like Ida B. Wells, people like Langston Hughes and Zerlin Hurston, uh, the Beat Generation writers like Allen Ginsberg, uh, certainly uh, songwriters like you mentioned, like John Lennon and Bob Dylan and Lord Nero and Joni Mitchell. You know, those are the people that influence me as a writer. And it's about telling the truth, you know, and, and the truth is, yeah, I would like to be a father. But the truth is, if I end up being a father as an African-American person, that child will be black. And whether they're straight or gay, whether they're a lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, whether they are, are male or female or no gender identity at all, they are still going to be black. That's the bottom line. And they're going to have to deal with the racism. And if they happen to be a girl, the sexism, if they happen to be queer, the homophobia or the transphobia. And this is something that we really have to have a conversation with our young people about. 
the reason why I talk to children the way I do, including in this letter and all the work I do around the country speaking uh, for the last 25, 30 years, I think most of us lie to children. I think most of us lie to young people. I was lied to. Columbus discovering America is a complete lie. He was a terrorist. He was a terrorist. He was a terrorist. George Washington being the father's country while conveniently leaving out that he was also a slave master along with all most of the other so-called founding fathers is a lie. And so, you know, me not learning about people who are African-American or Jewish or Italian or Polish, you know, uh, I didn't learn about anybody other than the English, you know what I'm saying? And then they became Americans and then they became white and they mostly were males and they mostly were heterosexual white males and it all had to do with violence and war and, and that was it. And so we are grossly miseducated and we keep passing the miseducation on to our children. And that's why I wrote the letter the way I did, because like, I'm like enough of this. I go to these colleges and universities and I'm, it's, 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 it's bananas to me. Some of the stuff that's being taught to young people is not, being, it's not a holistic history of America. You know this, David, as a New Yorker, that we are a diverse city. I love my Jewish friends. I love my Italian friends. I love my West Indian friends because I learn from all these different types of people. But if I'm living in a box and thinking that it's just me and my identity, I mean, it's very easy to become a hardcore hater of people who are different than you. I guess that's true. I'm sure it's true, but it's still hard, you know, unless I guess you're, you're born that way. As you know as well, Kevin, uh, you know, the trauma that we carry within us that we then pass on to the next generation and the generations, you know, after, so that there's this great chain that continues that, you know, creates this situation of uh, bigotry that we're talking about. I mean, it's very real. I mean, because if, the, if this country was founded, quote unquote, on hatred and bigotry, on racism and sexism, classism, you know, and it hasn't been corrected. This is why we still have the problems in 2020. We're talking about the 1700s, you know, when this all started, this, this grand experiment. And we've had a couple of opportunities, David, as you well know, to correct it. One was when they were creating the Constitution. But instead of doing the right thing, they left out white people who were not landowners or rich, and they left out women, and they left out black people, and they left out Native Americans. And we know that black folks were considered and written into the Constitution as three-fifths of a human being. The second opportunity was the Civil War and Reconstruction right after that. Well, we know what happened after that. White supremacy rose, as a, rose up again, and all of that was squashed. And it's almost like the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, which came out of the Civil War, didn't even exist. And so my people spent another basically 100 years and segregation. Even my great-grandfather was one of the many folks that was lynched because of the racism of that period in the early 1900s. The Civil Rights Movement was another opportunity for us to get it right, and even that was squashed. I mean, I want your listeners to go to YouTube. It's only six minutes, but listen to the speech that Bobby Kennedy gives, a white brother, with a black brother, Dr. King, is assassinated on April 4th, 1968. It's one of the most incredible speeches ever, where he takes ownership for who he is, he talks about what has happened to his own family because of violence, John Kennedy, his brother, the president being killed. But then he also talks about empathy and compassion and then how we got to make an effort to come together. And then we know two months later, Bobby's killed because violence seems to be the solution for everything in this country. And that is the fundamental problem with this country. If you listen to Trump's speech the other day, it was filled with nothing but violence. You know, these rioters, these looters, you know, these people, well, we got guns too and y'all need to, y'all know what to do with them. He wasn't talking about the National Guard. He was talking about Regular folks who did things like stormed the, the office of the Michigan governor, you know, demanding that this state be reopened during the height of the pandemic. This is insanity. This is absolute insanity when hatred and division and violence are the core values 
of any society. It's insanity. Yeah, it is. And I think people are seeing it now. You know, I'm optimist, so by I am by too. nature. I believe in rainbows, David. I remember <laughs> when I was in Hawaii for the first time years back, I had seen the George Clooney movie, uh, Descendants. I was like, I want to go to Hawaii. Mm. First night, at first morning I woke up, I saw a rainbow. But I also realized that rainbows don't happen. The coming together of colors don't happen without the storm that happened before it. Yeah, let's move to another chapter in your book between Russell Simmons and the world and Oprah. Uh, uh, why do you say? Yeah. Uh? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, as a man, and this is for all men, whether we're straight or gay or bisexual, however we identify ourselves, if you call yourself a man, we know that no matter what our racial background, cultural background, or religious or spiritual affiliation, we benefit from patriarchy, from sexism, from misogyny that we live in a male-dominated, male-controlled country, a male-dominated, male-controlled planet, and that um, you know, male privilege is very real. And just like I didn't learn anything about black people or Jewish people or Italian people or Irish people or any of the diverse folks that live in New York City when I was going through school, K through 12, and I was an A student, I can count on my one hand, David, how many women I learned about. Betsy Ross sold a flag, Rosa Parks, Eleanor Roosevelt, briefly, very briefly, Helen Keller, very briefly. I just knew she was blind. She could not hear. But if you go through it, you know, think about it. I graduated. I won the math award when I got out of high school. I won the English award. How many women writers did I even get in high school as I'm studying Shakespeare and Chaucer and Keats and all these folks? Emily Dickinson. That's pretty much it. And so that's called sexism, you know, and most of us don't even realize that we're socialized to be sexist. So why did I write this essay about Russell Simmons? Because it could be Russell Simmons or Harvey Weinstein or Matt Lauer or Woody Allen or Bill Cosby. There's a long list of folks that have benefited from this thing called sexism. And many are defiant, you know, like Russell is, and as I talk about in the piece, and, and do everything they can to blame the women but as being the problem. So they'll do things to try to discredit the women or try to smear their characters. This has been said to me by women like Bell Hooks and Eve Bensler, V, as she goes by now, and Gloria Steinem, that men have to step up. I was challenged in my own sexism, as I talk about in an essay, in the early 1990s when I was in my 20s. I'm now in my 50s, a very grown man. And I understand that they were right, that this is not going to end until men actually participate in helping it to end. Because half the country and half the world are women and girls. Why is it acceptable for women to do the same work as men in 2020 and make less pay? Why is it acceptable for us to live literally in a rape culture? culture of sexual violence. I mean, any of us can talk to our mothers, sisters, aunts, grandmothers, girlfriends. There's women around us, I guarantee you, that have been the victims of some form of violence, emotionally, spiritually, physically, or all three, by those of us who call ourselves men and boys. But in this case, particularly, Russell Simmons is someone you knew. I don't know if you knew the other people you cited, but let's say you knew him well. You had worked at Vibe, as you mentioned earlier, and you were very much a part of the whole hip-hop scene. At that point, tell me a little bit about the genesis of this. Did, was this an assignment for a magazine? You had a lot of access to him. He would keep talking to you. So I imagine he was either trying to convince you or did you know what you were going to say when you started or how did the evolution of this whole thing come about? Well, I'll, I'll say this to you. I don't care who the man is. If you've been accused by several women of the same thing, I believe that more than likely is true. If it's just one person, then I'm like, okay, let's hear, the, hear it out here. But if this seems to be a pattern of behavior, Harvey Weinstein, Matt Lauer, Bill Cosby, Russell Simmons, over the period of time, 
that makes it very suspect. They reached out to me. They asked me, you know, his people asked me, would you be willing to talk to Russell? He wants to talk to a journalist that he trusts. Let me make it very clear, as I say in the article, we're not friends. We're not friends at all. Not like that. I know him. I know of him. Obviously, I've interviewed him. I've been in spaces with him. But I agreed to it for medium.com. That's where originally the piece was going to be as a paid assignment. And I worked on it for a couple months back and forth. And there was a whole lot of stuff going on behind the scenes with the movie and the women involved in the movie. And they were nervous about me talking to them because they didn't know if I was on Russell's side, quote unquote. The movie is a documentary. It's called On the Record. It's on HBO Max. And it features three women, women of color specifically, who say that Russell Simmons raped them. Celia Abrams, Sherry Sher, and a woman named Drew Dixon, who's kind of the heart of the, the heart of the film. And so that's what it was about, really trying to figure out you know, what was happening here. And as I say in the article, in the essay, in the essay, I should call it, which was originally going to be for Medium, you know, I talk about how I was, they, he wanted to give me this file on all these women who were accusing him. I, I never looked at the files. I'm like, I'm not going to participate in that. Not as a journalist. And I've been a journalist for as long as I've been an activist, over 30 years. And so I know how to find sources for myself. I don't need someone handing me or spoon feeding me something because I think that's unethical. I would never do that. And eventually I took the piece away from medium because I realized, hey, this is not even the right place for it because they are more interested in the sensationalism, all of it. And what I'm actually interested in is the truth of it. And how do we use this story to help people to understand that this is not acceptable behavior and hopefully to move people towards, you know, action to end this bad behavior from all of us, not just him, but all of us. And, and you also mentioned Oprah here, who's, you know, sort of up there, was discussed as a presidential candidate at one point as somehow complicit in giving him a pass on this? Well, she is a complex figure. You know, I mean, Oprah is a product of post-civil rights America where certain opportunities have been made possible for people of color. That's reality. I, I, I support her and what she's been able to do as, an, as a media mogul, the fact that she's been able to own her own entity all this time, it's very rare. I mean, the fact that she became a black billionaire, that's incredible to me. But by the same token, I think that no one is immune, no matter who you are or who you think you are, from constructive criticism. And the reality is that a lot of the folks felt that she had abandoned the women in the film when she decided to pull out of the project due to, you know, there was all kinds of whilst things being said. There was Russell Simmons pressure. There was pressure from the rapper 50 Cent, from other people, the social media fire that people were coming at her and, and her, part, her friend Gail King. Who knows what happened? Really, only Oprah knows. But what I do know is that these women deserve to be supported and they need to be supported, not just by a few people, but they need to be supported by people with power and influence like an Oprah Winfrey and other women. You know, that's, that's real to me. And I think that that's an important thing to say, but at the end of the day, it's really, the piece is really about all of us. Like, you know, who are we and how do we even end up in this place where we're having to have these, not just difficult conversations about race and racism, about sex and sexism. And just like there are black people who participate in the system of racism, there are women who participate in the system of sexism. That's just the reality. Yeah, with Russell also, there was some suggestion that people are picking on the black man, you know, who got to this high level of success and that maybe that wasn't a good thing for young black people or in, in general to point the finger at Russell when there were so many others as well. Well, I mean, that's actually wrong to say because there's a lot of fingers that were pointed at Charlie Rose, Matt Lauer, uh, Harvey Weinstein, Woody Allen. I mean, Roman Polanski, a lot of people have felt it, as you know. Yeah. That's number one. Number two, as a black man, as a heterosexual black man, I'm going to say to you very directly, 
you know, I can't talk about racism and then turn around and hypocritically become a sexist monster and attacking black women. And that's been, there's been a history of people talking about oppression or injustice in one form and turning around and being oppressive themselves. It's just unacceptable. It's unacceptable. I, I think the real conversation, because that's a diversionary conversation, the real conversation should be, why is it okay to rape, batter, bruise, wound, injure women and girls in any form? Why is that okay for anybody to do no matter what their race is. Why is that okay? And why are we always trying to silence those conversations when they're brought up? And have you had any reaction from him yet or Oprah or with regard to no. this? No, no, I'm, I, I'm sure that uh, they all read it. <laughs> and I'm sure they're following the trajectory of the book. David, I, I, you know, like I said, I come out of a tradition of people who are about, let's tell the truth. You know, and it's not comfortable sometimes. I mean, when Bobby Kennedy in 1966 had the courage to go to South Africa as a white man, as a wealthy white man, and used the term white supremacy in 1966 in South Africa, that's the kind of writer I, I, I am. That's the kind of activist I want to be, that you're going to just go into the teeth of what's out there and say, this is unacceptable. You know, even if you ostracize me, I still have to tell the truth because the bigger picture for me is not about Kevin Powell or Oprah or Weinstein or any of these people. It's really about people. Do we really care about human beings and a human race? That's the question for me. And, and when you ran for office, what, what was that experience like? Did, was, was this front and center in your uh, campaign as well? Yes. When I ran, I started thinking about it in 2006, but I really ran in 2008 and 2010, so I ran twice. As you mentioned, I lost both times, which is fine because the reality is my soul is not meant for electoral politics. You know, I decided to run because I had spent a year 2005 and 2006, going back and forth to the Gulf Coast doing Hurricane Katrina relief work. We had created a project called Katrina on the Ground. We had, we had organized and, and trained 700 young people, college students, to do work in the Gulf Coast. It was an amazing experience. And one of the things that came out of it for me was like, look at the policies that exist and what is happening with these elected officials. Why is it not more happening except for a few that are dedicated to making sure that this situation happening in, in New Orleans and throughout the Gulf Coast was corrected, was rectified. So that's why I ran. But I certainly ran on the, as a person who came from a working class background. So I talked about education. I talked about, you know, you know, supporting small businesses in the community. I talked about things that I thought were important to the community. But what I learned, sir, is that even in New York City, which is supposed to be so progressive, so liberal, so uh, forward thinking, even here in New York City is no different than anywhere down south or in the Midwest or any other part of the country where certain people want to hoard power. You know, certain groups want to hoard power and they want to determine when you can run for office and if you should run for office and who should support you. And so the whole thing, whether it's Democrat or Republican, liberal or conservative, actually has nothing to do with regular people. It has everything to do most of the time with a few exceptions like AOC, you know, and Bernie Sanders and a few other folks who speak power to truth with, you know, just power. And I'm not interested in that. What I'm interested in is people, not power. I'm interested in people having power, not an individual or one organization having power or domain over other, a whole bunch of people. Because at the end of the day, you become just a progressive version of Donald Trump. And that's all it is. And I'm saying that as a lifelong progressive. Most of us who call ourselves progressive or liberals actually are not progressive or liberal because we really not are interested in anything that's about changing this significantly for the benefit of all of us. It's really about just a handful of elite people controlling everything. That's what I experienced when I ran for office both times. Absolutely. And that turned, and they know it. And that turned you off from trying again. Oh, I have no interest in it, sir. You know, I've been blessed to see the country. I've been all 50 states, small towns, rural areas, big cities, all of it. I, I belong to the whole country. I'm a citizen of this country, of this world, and I'm an activist. And so I want to be able to move freely 
And I mean, you said it in this interview, you know, look at the fact that it takes people to get the politicians to move. Well, I'd rather be on the side of the people than the politicians. Right. I want to be, you know, that's where I'm at. Your life has been, you know, hard, right? In many ways from your childhood through overcoming all these other uh, obstacles, uh, the, the case of uh, the woman that you alluded to earlier with regard to a case there of violence uh, that you've, you know, obviously feel very strongly about making a recovery from all of that. You've gone to therapy, right? You've admitted to depression. Do you feel like there's a stigma about all of that? Not to me, sir. I think I'm, I think I'm honest. I, I don't. I haven't been to depression uh, therapy. I I go to therapy. <laughs> I have spiritual advisors. I'm a vegan. I'm a yogi. Uh, I'm a skateboarder. I got four boards in this house. I, I work out every single day. I believe that um, you know we're not even taught in this country as we go through the educational process uh, how to be whole human beings. I don't think we are, sir. I think about what Dr. King said in his Vietnam War speech: how we as Americans were moving from being a people-oriented society to a thing-oriented society. Everything is about status. It's about career. It's about material things, material acquisitions to the detriment of us developing as whole human beings. I don't see anything as hard or bad. You know, I, I, I'm thankful for being born poor. I'm thankful for being the product of a single mother. I'm thankful for welfare, food stamps, government cheese, rats, and roaches, because that's what it taught me, sir, how to navigate any situation in life. That's what it taught me. Including that fateful year of 2018, which you write about, which is this insane situation you found yourself in with yeah. with your Minnesota. wife, right? Yes, sir. And uh, you were trying to, you were working in a theater company. You had uh, looking at, at that as, an, as another way to express yourself and to, to get good stories out there. And suddenly you found yourself embroiled in this crazy law case. In Minnesota, in Minnesota. In, in that same Minnesota that we know about today. Yes, sir. Well, I tell you, uh, someone sent my wife uh, a hateful email in the fall of 2017 in the midst of us producing this show called She, a choreo play, which is about ending violence against women and girls, you know, and we had a great run at uh, the Hair Arts Center here in New York, uh, which is in Soho. And it was terrible. My, my wife was affected by it, profoundly affected by it. We went back and forth for two weeks. I looked up the person that I thought was the person who sent the email. I sent a response to them and I sent it to a few other people, but not like some mass email, anything like that. The next thing I know, fast forward a month later, the lawyer for the woman in Minnesota, a man named Aaron Scott with Fox Rothschild, the law firm, one of the major law firms in the country, sends us a lawsuit saying, because I was a celebrity author, quote unquote, and had and went off on me about all this different stuff, and that they were suing us for half a million dollars for quote unquote defamation. We spent the next year going back and forth including to Minnesota on three different occasions. And we ended up on trial in Minnesota, in Minneapolis-St. Paul in December of 2018 with a white Republican judge and a jury that was all white folks except for an Asian juror. And we lost. And we were expected to pay several hundred thousand dollars in uh, restitution for, a e for an email. Essentially, what this lawyer did, a white brother with Fox Rothschild in Minneapolis-St. Paul, was used the legal system to destroy us. And it did, financially and otherwise. It did. And I could sit there right now, David, and I could easily hate people because of what we experienced. You know? Yeah, you could have folded at some point, right? It nearly broke both of us. It nearly broke both of us. But I don't have that kind of mentality in me 
But I said to myself, I have to tell the story of what happened. And when George Floyd was killed on the video by that police officer in the same place where my wife and I were on trial just less than two years ago, I said, well, look at that. You know, everyone who thinks of Minnesota as Prince and all this peace and love and people coming together, that's not what we experience. And now the whole world knows this is what goes on in places like Minnesota, because as Malcolm X famously said, South just means South of the Canadian border. <laughs> the whole thing is the South. And is, is writing partly therapeutic for you? Fully therapeutic, sir. Fully. Since I was a child. I've been writing since I was a child. Before I started writing as a child, I used to draw. My favorite artist when I was eight or nine years old was actually, actually Salvador Dali. I love the visual arts. And so I didn't know what the word art meant, David, when I was growing up. I mean, again, when you grow up in a poor environment, there's no art classes. There's no art schools. You know, you have art in, in your school. But you no know, one ever said, you know, oh, you can be an artist. That was not something that you even thought you could actually aspire to. You can be a writer. I didn't know I could do any of those things. I just knew that I loved creativity. That's what I, I've always been a part of. The other day I was looking at, uh, you know, Elliot Wilson has this uh, email newsletter now, and uh, he was featuring your stories with Tupac. Uh, Is that right? Oh, you didn't see it. Yeah, you should see it because he had no. the covers of, of four. I guess you did like four covers with Tupac at Vibe. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes, sir. And, you know, and Tupac has come up in the demonstrations as well. From what I understand, people have been playing his music in the course of, you know, of the daily events. So, you know, I'm dying to know a little bit about your uh, experience with Tupac and what are we going to learn in your book that uh, we don't know? I can't tell you the secrets of the come book. On, but I will one. <laughs> <laughs> what I will say is that I, um, I met Tupac in 1993, 27 long years ago, which is really incredible. And as you alluded to in the introduction, I was on the first season of MTV's The Real World. I had no idea. We had no idea what the impact of that show would be. We had no idea that it would create this whole genre of television that still exists to this day and help to put someone named Donald Trump in the White House, the reality yeah, TV show true, president, true. Which, is, which is insane. But we met and Tupac turned out to be as big a fan of mine from watching the show as I was of his. And I had talked to Vibe about writing about him. And, um, you know, I got the assignment finally. and. I thought it was going to be one article. It turned into three years, three cover stories for Vibe magazine, then a fourth cover story for Rolling Stone because I was in Vegas when Tupac died and I was in that Vibe at that point. So I wrote the piece for Rolling Stone. And little did I know, and as you know, David, because you were, you were at paper for all those years, I mean, we, you know, when you have pop culture icons like a Madonna, who Tupac dated, you know, famously, they dated in the 90s. You have uh, a John Lennon, you know, a Marilyn Monroe, a Janis Joplin. These folks, when they die, especially when they die young, they become larger than life figures. Kurt Cobain, Amy Winehouse. There's so many names that I can think of. You know, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison. Um, and it's tragic. And what ended up happening is that the bigger he got, the more people started looking to me because of those articles from Vibe Magazine and Rolling Stone as some sort of quote-unquote expert on Tupac Shakur. And so I felt a certain amount of responsibility to represent him and not ever profit in any way. I've, I've sat on the audio tapes all these years. I haven't done anything with the audio tapes. But I decided in the last few years, you know, Kev, it's time. You need to tell the story because I keep meeting people who really knew him, who have never talked before. You, people will get that from the Tupac biography. They'll get some backstories that don't exist anywhere, you know, that, that, that I think are going to be mind-blowing for, for folks. And they're going to they're, they're get a picture of America through the life of, through the lens of Tupac Shakur. Because it's no different than, like, say, Elvis. Elvis comes along in 1956, 1955, 56, you know, and the Beatles came along in 64. What was happening in America at that time? You know, because it's not just about their great music, but it's also about, you know, what they represented and how people kind of connected their identities through these people. And that's what I'm doing with this book.
So do you feel like he's as relevant today as ever? I think he's, I think Tupac Shakur is one of the biggest pop culture global icons anywhere and ever. When you go to Africa, which I've been to, and he is as big as Bob Marley in Africa, that's saying something very significant given who Bob Marley was and who he rep- what he represents. As you know, David, there's not many people you can say that are multi-generational global pop icons that people from generation to generation can say, this person. Tupac's one of those people. I have literally have met people who were born 15 years ago who were like, Tupac's my favorite rapper ever. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, ima- I'm not exaggerating. This is really incredible to me. The light, and it's not just black people. I'm talking about white, black, every identity. You know, there's something about him. You know, he was strikingly handsome. He was very gifted as an actor, as a rapper. Uh, there was a charisma there. There was an ability to speak. The many personalities that he had, being a Gemini, you know, and so he resonates with so many different types of people. And then there's also the issues of manhood and masculinity, the fact that he was charged, accused of rape and he ended up going to jail, you know, from some lesser offense. But that's a part of his legacy as well that has to be unpacked. You know, the fact that he's the son of a Black Panther Party member, Fanny Shakur, what she represented for him. And he's a product of the civil rights movement. So all those things make, it, make him this kind of incredible figure for different people to enter into to try to figure out who they are as they're studying him which is no different than how I feel about John Lennon of the Beatles, you know, or Bob Dylan. So I was listening to Bob Dylan this weekend and I was just like, man, you know, I'm looking at, you know, you know, the free will and Bob Dylan album and I'm seeing myself through his songs because Bob Dylan's music is timeless. Well, Tupac is also timeless. And uh, how do you feel about the hip hop community today? I'm, I'm a hip hop head for life, but I represent hip hop, the culture. And I make a distinction. There's hip-hop culture and there's hip-hop the industry. I represent the culture, the graffiti writer, the dancers, the MCs, the rappers, uh, the DJs, and the fifth element of hip-hop culture is knowledge. The industry, which is what a lot of people are talking about, is all the crazy, wild, ignorant, illiterate, dumb, minstrel show type stuff that I think is ultimately destructive to black people and any people who absorb it. That's what I have a problem with. And I know that there was a time when we used to have balance. When we met David back in the 90s, it was actually balance. You could hear positive and negative on the same album. Now, much of it is negative. It's not the fault of the young people making the music. It's the industry or the system, back to that word, that I believe only lets certain kinds of music out because they are very concerned about, well, if we let certain kinds of music out that's political in the space of, in the, in the, in the framework of a John Lennon in the early 70s or Bob Marley or anyone else who was saying anything that was really woke, as we say, in the 60s and 70s, it might actually bring people together. And which is why I think there's been not just hip hop, but rock and roll, all of it, pop culture in general has been woefully dumbed down in the last 25 years. We know it. You know, we'd be lying to ourselves if we weren't honest about that, with a few exceptions. But I think that this movement is forcing people to say, all right, we can't just make frivolous music anymore, create frivolous art. We actually need to do some things that actually are significant. And I think that's why this is important because this has been way out of control. Well, not just hip hop. I mean, where's Kurt Cobain? Where's this generation's Kurt Cobain? Where is he? Where is she? Where are they? You know, we need to see these people. Kurt Cobain was as important to me as Tupac in the 90s. I mean, he's one of our greatest songwriters ever. I mean, this is a man, a heterosexual man, who was writing about gender issues in his songs. He was profound, you know? We need that now. And it's coming. I guarantee it's coming because of these protests. The courage is going to come to people that I should say these things now. Well, let's hope so. Thank you very much, Kevin Powell, for sharing all of your amazing thoughts and your passion with us today. Good luck with your book. 
Well, David, I just want to say thank you because you're one of our, our media and journalistic pioneers in New York City and what, you, what you've done for many years, uh, including giving younger writers like me an opportunity when I was first coming up. I just want to say thank you to you. I'm always conscious of who gave me a shot. So just thank you. And I need to say that to you. All right, man. Thanks so much. Have a blessed day. You've been listening to Light Culture. You can find us at shopburb.com, Light Culture, or at Light Culture Podcast. Thanks again to Burb. You can follow them at shopburb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.